Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to episode one of series four of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I'm going to break with tradition and use the words of today's guest to frame this week's episode. To navigate the increasingly complex world of talent, HR needs to grow more quickly into a strategic advisor. More companies will need CHROs and they will need to have an equal voice alongside CEOs and CFOs in the most critical business decisions. In the coming decades of disruption, management of talent will become the main differentiator of high-performing organisations. This requires HR 3.0. Those are the words of Keith McNulty, our guest today on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Keith leads the people analytics and measurement team of McKinsey and is also a prolific and renowned writer, which saw him recognised by LinkedIn as a top voice in December 2017. Keith is a deep thinker and one of the most knowledgeable and visionary leaders in the space. So I know that listeners will enjoy this episode of the podcast. In our conversation, Keith and I discuss the aforementioned HR 3.0 model, an analytically sophisticated and agile function populated by professionals with strong business acumen and problem-solving skills. We talk about the skills and capabilities you need in a people analytics team, and we reflect on highlights from Keith's journey of building the people analytics and measurement team at McKinsey, which he's done over the last two and a half years. We also reflect on the people analytics space and also what drives Keith to share his knowledge and experience with the community. And like with all our guests, we look into the crystal ball and ponder what the role of HR will be in 2025. This episode is a must listen for anyone in the people analytics role. HR and business professionals interested in how people data can drive business outcomes and CHROs looking to build or scale their HR functions. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 4 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Perceptix. Perceptix is the leading enterprise employee survey and people analytics platform, providing deep insights into an organization's people and giving leaders the data and insight they need to improve the employee experience, predict challenges in the business, and drive strategic action to deliver improved business performance. As a strategic partner to hundreds of global enterprises, including nearly one-third of the Fortune 100, Perceptix is challenging the status quo to help people and organisations thrive. Learn how your people data can be used to drive strategic action and improve business outcomes today by visiting perceptix.com. That's perceptix.com. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Keith McNulty, who heads people analytics and measurement globally for McKinsey to the Digital HR Leaders podcast, as well as being a very prolific writer uh, on the topic and other uh, associated topics around HR. Welcome to the show, show, Keith. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Can you give us a quick introduction, give listeners a quick introduction to yourself and your background? Uh, Yeah, so my brief life story is that uh, I started my you know, professional life as a mathematician. Um, and after realizing that I didn't really want to, you know, do that long term, I ended up joining McKinsey um, as a McKinsey consultant, um, you know, 20 years ago now, quite, quite a while ago. It doesn't seem like that long. And um, I, after working on some client work for a period of time, I became really fascinated in the question of talent. Um, in particular, I felt that the world around us was not kind of measuring and analyzing talent in a really systematic or mathematical way. It was still very much done on you know, gut reactions and you know that that sort of thing. So um, I 
after about four or five years at McKinsey, I started to focus much more on the, the topic of talent. I moved into an internal role. Um, I started working on creating better processes to measure and, um, and assess talent and understand talent. Um, and then that developed into, in the last five years or so, um, getting much more involved in talent analytics because what we found through having better processes is that we were collecting a lot more data and that, that, that data was suddenly becoming available to give us insights. Um, so for the last um, like four or five years, I've been much more involved in the field of people analytics. That led to me taking up a role as global leader of, of people analytics internally at McKinsey um, about two years ago. So, okay, great. Well, we're definitely going to talk a lot about people analytics today. I know, I know that. Um, but I thought, firstly, let's, let's, let's look at an article you published last year, one I really enjoyed around HR 3.0. And I know you did a, quite a few presentations around the world on that model. And obviously, analytics is, is a big part of it. Um, can you summarize what, what, what you cover in the three, HR 3.0 and particularly the three sort of stage evolution of HR as you see it? Yeah, I mean, maybe before I go into that, I'll give a bit of context around yeah. you know, what, why I wrote that article. Um, uh, at the time, I'd been attending a lot of different you know, HR events and conferences, and people were talking about people analytics a lot, but I wasn't really hearing a, a proper explanation or narrative as to why it was important. People were just saying, you should be doing it. Yeah. Um, and at the time, uh, I was doing a talk at a Santa Fe Institute event, and one of the other speakers there was a, a fairly well-known economist called Bob Allen from NYU, and he showed some fascinating research which showed... Uh, some statistics on earnings and uh, productivity during the original, you know, uh, industrial revolution in Britain in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And then he compared that to the same statistics today. Mm. And it really blew me away what he showed, which was that we are in the middle of one of the greatest disruptions in history um, related to people. Um, and that, together with some research that I saw from the McKinsey Global Institute, which talked about um, the size of the disruption in terms of automation, and that's going to happen you know, as, as soon as by the year 2030. Um, I started to realize that this is really what's driving the need for change in human resources, yeah. that to be able to operate effectively in a massively changed environment in the future, um, HR can't keep operating the way it has been in the past. Um, but I also acknowledge that there has been some movement. So you see around the time that this disruption started, which was actually in the late 70s, it's been going on a lot longer than people think, um, we also see that that coincides with changes in the HR function. So if you go back to the late 70s, HR was really just a back office function. There's almost no analytics involved, lots of paperwork, lots of process management. Um, you know, if you move to the late 80s and early 90s, we start seeing the beginning of a move towards a much more professionalized mm -hmm. HR function. Um, and in particular, um, more of a uh, service provider to the business. Um, and I labeled that HR 2.0. It was, it was a distinct change in the role of HR. Um, and it started in the late 80s, early 90s, although for some companies it didn't really start happening until we got into the noughties. Yeah. Um, but, um, but that was HR 2.0. Um, but if we look to the future and we see the size of this disruption, because it's only just beginning and nobody knows when it's going to end, um, that disruption means that HR really have to step up even further. Mm -hmm. um, how will we be able to understand, um, analyze, uh, how, will we, how will we be able to manage talent in this disrupted world where talent's going to move through businesses much more quickly, um, where finding people is going to be more challenging and where retaining them is going to be more challenging. 
Um, there's going to be some major changes needed to the function to make that happen. And certainly if we keep going in the service provider model, that's really the most common model today, um, the companies are really going to struggle in that future talent world. So the idea behind HR 3.0 is this, this fairly substantial step up we really need to make uh, to be prepared for that, for that future world of talent. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. And I think, you know, all of us that have worked in HR, work in HR, we can see that the, the expectations from the business are certainly changing. You know, a, a constant charge leveled at HR professionals, and I think this is where people do it from a very generalist level, is they don't have, necessarily have the business acumen that, that's, that's required to make that step change to, to the 3.0 model. How can HR professionals get that business acumen? Yeah, first of all, I think it's a valid point. I think in, in, in my 3.0 model, um, there were really three fundamental changes to the business that are required. One is much more data-driven, much more analytically driven. Um, a second is that the organization needs to be more agile. Um, so instead of really a swim lane, service line type approach to HR, um, there needs to be a combination of that with a much more generalist approach um, to the function. And then third of all, to enable that, you need the broader business acumen, not from everyone, but from a much more substantial number of HR professionals that than, um, than we have today. Um, so in terms of that, I'd like to be able to say that education programs have caught up with that and are starting to offer ways of developing people in that way, but I don't think it's actually true. Mm. Um, and often uh, the education sector tends to take a while to catch up with the enterprise environment and you know, work out what's needed. Um, so there's, there's not a huge amount of opportunities out there for people to take dedicated HR programs or dedicated HR learning that really covers a lot of this new stuff like analytics, like agile. Um, and so it's really, I think, up to, to, you know, immediately, immediate changes are up to two groups of people. I think, first of all, the HR professional themselves need to, you know, motivate themselves to go out and find that learning. It is there. It's often not on HR programs. Um, it's often in much more general programs. For example, it's very easy to learn about Agile mm. and what Agile means if you go out there and look for it, but you need to actually do that yourself. Yeah. Um, the, it, you won't be led into it in the way that education is, the education structured currently, I think. Um, but also, I think we need HR leaders to be more brave in introducing this stuff to their business. So um, if you want to have good people analytics, bring in experienced psychometricians and other people that are familiar with analyzing talent and people. Um, if you want to be more agile, bring in some scrum masters, listen to them, help them transform your business to a more agile way of working. Um, and the third part of that is the talent part. You, it, it, you need to start thinking about bringing in individuals who have a broader range of experiences in the business and not just people who are 100% HR experienced. So in order for HR professionals to operate in this environment, they need to have great familiarity with the broader aims of the business. So bringing in individuals that have that broader exposure, you know, not completely replacing existing HR people, just enhancing them with those yeah. individuals um, will, would be a fairly transformative um, piece of work. And that's some of, among some of the things that I've um, been doing in, in my um, group and in my function. Um, but it, I think that's one of the, those are some of the things that, that need to be done. And I think it's dependent on the HR professional themselves and the leaders of the business to really drive that along and, and make that happen. I think, I mean, certainly from all the organizations that I talk to, especially the people analytics leaders, it's a real challenge for them to, to try and create that culture, um, that data literacy within their broader HR population. Um, and, you know, this is constant thing. How do we excite, enable and equip HR business partners? 
to have the right conversations with the business so that we can then work with them on the right projects. Yep. Is that something that, that you're trying to solve with, with some of the education that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, data literacy is known to be a problem in enterprises more broadly, and in HR functions, it's no, it's probably a little bit more of a problem yeah. because historically, there's this been understanding that it's not a very data driven field. Um, now that is changing, but as with all changes, you know, everybody needs to catch up. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to work for a very data driven organization, so I don't see the same degree of a challenge where I work. Uh, but that said, in, in, in conversations I have with clients and other externals, um, I do come across a lot of concern around how do we get our people to take data ser seriously, to understand it, to be confident working in it. Um, I think there's a lot of nervousness and worry among HR professionals because they've not had to do this before. And now it's kind of a whole new ball game. Um, but I, you know, I think it's the way of the world is that everything is going in that direction. Everything is moving towards data. So I think people need to be brave and they need to step up and they need to engage with data more. You know, mistakes will be made and that's part of the learning process. Um, but by engaging with data-related problems, that will force you to go out and ask questions yeah. and, and learn and get the information that you need to become more comfortable working with data. So I think it's important that, you know, we stop um, this, uh, you know, concern that people have that they're going to make mistakes or they're going to, uh, worry, they're, they're not going to be successful working with data. I mean, every all of that is a learning process, and to move along in that learning process, you have to be brave and engage with the data in the first place, I think. And be comfortable with making mistakes. Absolutely. You learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the, the, one of the challenges I see well, well with analytics is, you mentioned the swim lanes, and obviously HR has traditionally operated in those swim lanes for a long time. Mm -hmm. Analytics goes across those swim lanes. You've mm -hmm. got almost forcing people to come out of their swim lanes a yes. little bit more, which actually can be scary, but I guess it's an opportunity as well. Yeah, I mean, um, Later on, I think when we talk about a little bit about how my team operates, um, a big part of that is that you know, HR still has operational um, pieces inside it. You know, the, the organizations will often have a different organization looking after recruiting versus you know, employee you know, satisfaction versus the other elements of HR. Um, but an analytics function can't be organized like that because it would be massive <laughs> if it was. Um, so what you need is you need individuals to be able to engage across those, um, uh, those lines. Um, and I think this, this um, group of people who can engage with a more general set of HR questions, um, uh, really in terms of seeing them as business cases rather than swim lanes, yeah. um, you know, that's going to be critical to operating a strong HR function um, that, that those kind of individuals will lie over the people that um, that actually operate the the swim lanes themselves. Um, so you'll have a combination of a you know a well organized operational function uh, that can operate within these swim lanes when necessary. But you'll also have a group of people that can take on strategic questions that cross that cross um, all of those at the same time. So that leads on quite nicely to the work you've been doing at, at McKinsey with, with the People Analytics and Measurement team. You've been leading it for just over two years now. What have been some of the key milestones along that journey? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's moved very, very quickly. And it is great to work in an environment where you get a lot of support from the business to build a, a function like this because um, you can you know, build it very rapidly if you're given that support. Um, I think if I go back to the you know, beginning of my involvement in, in in, um, in this, uh, one of the things that I think a lot of other uh, people working in people analytics will find familiar here is what the team was like at the beginning. Um, and it was very much a reporting team. 
Yeah. Um, so uh, the role of that team was to provide information to the business on you know, historic and current uh, issues related to talent. And a lot of that reporting was very manual. So there was a lot of human effort being taken up in just transmitting data from one place in the organization to another. Um, now, uh, as I looked at that and said, if, I, if we want to build this into you know, a world leading people analytics team, what would be required here? Uh, the first thing um, that I you know, took on board is that a people analytics team will always have reporting and metrics as a fundamental part of it. Um, and uh, it was important that we get that up and running effectively yeah. in a way that wasn't highly manual so that we could then start to build to do some of the other things that you'd like, like a, a HR 3.0 um, people analytics function to do. Yeah. So about 50% of the team focus on uh, reporting and metrics. And part of that is being involved in defining what metrics are and owning them for the business but also getting them out there to the people that need them yeah. um, in the time that they need them. Um, and their elements of that are, you know, what, what, what I would call ad hoc, which is where people just need certain data and it's not data that people would usually ask for. And so we'll have members of the team that just deal with that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but then uh, more importantly, uh, we've set up um, people that work in a kind of a DevOps model uh, where we actually develop our own internal software products to help people serve themselves with the data. And that's been a big move, I think, in the last um, uh, couple of years, which is to um, enable the business to access data for themselves, but therefore vastly reducing the amount of time that people on our team need to spend yeah. actually you know, getting that data and procuring it. So there's a big technical element of the team, which is developing products for people to access data and metrics. Um, that frees up capacity um, when you do that. Um, so that then allowed me to think about what are the other parts um, of a group like this if they want to really you know, hit the HR 3.0 benchmark. And this is where we move on to what we were speaking about earlier, which is addressing strategic questions of the business that cross many functions mm. using data. Um, now to do that, you need two very fundamental groups of people. The first is you need data scientists because you're going to be playing with that data in all sorts of different ways. Uh, you're going to be using some fairly advanced modeling. Um, so I have a cross-functional data science group that have expertise across a broad range of areas like statistical modeling, natural language processing. Um, we do a lot of work in graphs. Um, and uh, we th that group um, is, a, is a fundamental part of solving some of these business problems. But they can't work just on their own because data scientists have a lot of talent. But yeah. one of the talents they're not known for is their interaction with the business. Yeah. And data scientists tend to like working on the, the actual details of the problem. They don't tend to enjoy the parts that involve the, the business communication and those sorts of things. I'm generalizing a bit, but, but I think it's a relatively fair generalization. Um, so you need to um, enhance the data scientists with a group which we call translators. Yeah. And translators do that communication with the business. So they help define the problem. They help turn it from a kind of fairly ambiguous type of concept into an actual set of steps that you can go through to solve the problem. And then that problem is communicated to the data scientist. They work in partnership with the data scientist to take the analytical steps needed to solve it. And then they think about how do we communicate that back to you know, a population which doesn't understand data science. So how do we make it intuitive? 
uh, to the population that we deal with. So those two groups work very much hand in hand mm. on a wide range of initiatives. Um, and that model, I think, is you know starting to look like more broadly within the analytics space, not just HR, the, the successful model of operating um, in an enterprise. And then behind all that, if you think about the reporting and metrics, if you think about the data science, if you think about all of those things, that all relies on having really good quality data. You can't do good work if you don't have good data. It's rubbish in, rubbish out principle. Um, so one of the groups that we started to develop very quickly is a data engineering group. Yeah. Um, and the purpose of the data engineering group is to make sure that our data is a very, very high quality, uh, that we manage it well, that when changes happen to it, those are well communicated so people know about it. Um, and, and having that as a foundation is very, very important because it means we, I, I'm, I'm sure that you hear a lot that one of the biggest challenges that people have, not just in the HR space, in many um, areas, is data quality, right? Oh, yeah. That yeah. Some people say 80% of data science is data cleaning. So I wanted to get away from that. And so if we, if we enable a group of data engineers to ensure our data is clean, well-structured, understandable, that takes that away from the data scientists. So the data scientists can really focus on the actual analytics itself and, and, and drive to a high quality answer. So, th so those are really, you know, that's how the team is, has, been, um, has been built around those core principles. And in terms of, of growth, obviously we don't necessarily go to how, many, how big the team is, but it, it's, it's, it's grown significantly, presumably. Yeah, I, I mean, it has. I mean, not as much as it would have had to if we hadn't addressed the self data self-service and the automation aspect. So being able to automate the delivery of data has taken a huge amount of capacity, manual capacity away, which we can then repurpose um, for many of the other things that we would like to do. Um, but uh, another reason the team has grown is because we want to get really specific expertise into it. So, you know, to work in this space now, you need to know a lot about natural language processing because a lot of HR data is text data. Yeah. Um, you need to know about ways of, uh, ways of understanding connections. So we do a lot of work around graphs and and networks and those sorts of things. Um, psychometrics is a big thing. You know, we are in the end we're analyzing people and talent, so we need psychometric expertise. And then you just need to be able to do all the statistical modeling that data scientists do. You need to know about models, which ones work for which problems. So a lot of the reasons why um, the group is bigger is because we needed that specific yeah. talent to come in to, so that we had that expertise base. As you said, there's a lot of different skills that are required to really be effective for Absolutely. people analysis. So th some things I need to touch on from there. So firstly, by automating um, as much of the reporting as you can, you're almost generating an appetite for data, I guess, in the business. And they can start to then understand that actually we can get this stuff out of HR. This is quite exciting. And that probably generates questions. Yeah, I mean, that's never been a problem at McKinsey. McKinsey's a very <laughs> data-hungry, da highly data-driven culture. Yeah. And that is a wonderful thing because it means that you know, we operate in, in an environment where we're highly valued. Um, but it is challenging as well because the pace at which you have to deliver um, and the complexity of, of some of the requests are very, very high. Um, so for us, it's been less, um, you know, um, encouraging people to ask for data. That's always been there. But it has been an interesting journey to try and say, how do we enable these products to be able to answer all the different varieties of questions that will come in from various parts of the business about our talent? Um, and, uh, but there is definitely a, a shift in culture that you can achieve. And I'm speaking more broadly here, which is this idea. And I think a lot of companies still operate this way where, you know, there's a few people sitting at some desks and then somebody else will just say to them, can I have the data please? And they're the only people that can go and get that data. That's a massive lock mm. on the resources of the business. Uh, it means that the people that want the data can't get it at the speed they need it. 
Um, and it also means that often that group are overworked because all of that stuff is coming their way and they only have manual ways of solving it. So this idea of being able to expand your technology and create an environment where you can automate that um, just opens data up. You obviously have to do it in a safe way and just think about you know all the guardrails around the data, but it opens the data up and it allows the business to be able to access it more freely, which aids decision making, makes things more rapid, more agile. Um, so that's a, that's really a huge thing, and um, that's why I always say because there's a few people out there that have kind of said that reporting and metrics is not really part of people analytics. It is one of the most fundamental parts of people analytics, and you have to get it right, and you have to know how to deliver it in an agile and and and, and, um, and rapid way. Um, to help the business make decisions because talent is moving so quickly now, yeah. as I mentioned earlier. So the data needs to be able to move quickly so that you can make decisions about talent. And I think what's interesting is a lot of companies who have separated people analytics from reporting tend to bring it back mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, after a period of time. And maybe it's because they come to the same realization that they just explained. Yeah. So one of the other areas I think is really exciting is around the translator role. We hear quite a lot about, and I know this means excellent stuff published by McKinsey around the importance of translators in any type of analytics, you yep. know, whether it's people or, or elsewhere in the business. Where, where are you finding the translators from? What sort of backgrounds have they got? Because it's quite a specialist skill in, in, in many respects. Yeah, I mean, my personal belief is that translators need to come from the business because each business operates in a different context. And you need to understand the culture, the way it works. You need to understand, you know, why are these questions being asked? What is it that's driving these questions? Um, the, way I do, the way I describe it is if you take a scientist out of a you know, scientific institution or a university and you ask them a particular question um, a, you know, about any field really, they will have a particular approach and it's often quite generic mm. um, and it will consult you know, a lot of the general research on the topic. And what they'll deliver back is might be useful but not necessarily something that the business leaders feel they could implement because it doesn't have that you know, specific understanding of the context that, that the organization's operating in. Now, if, you're, if you've got a translator who you've brought from the business, when that question is asked, the translator is much more likely to say to themselves, ah, I know why this question's being asked. I understand what the challenges of the business are and why we're asking this question, which means that they can then communicate it in a more effective way to the data scientist. So the data scientist is, is really working on the core aspects of, of yeah. the solution. Yeah. But then when they bring it back to the business, they can not just say, this is what we've seen and this is what we've discovered, but they can also say, this is what you can do about it. The, yeah. These are the, some of the solutions that you can put in that might work in our context because they understand the business. So um, translators in, in our group have been sourced from the business. Um, and I think in most good analytics functions, you need to kind of source your translators from the business. So people who have worked in broader, broader areas of your business, but have a real interest in love of analytics and data, those are ideal um, profiles for translators. And I think perhaps one of the challenges that other organizations are facing is that they, are, they, they sometimes they're, they're trying to get people from HR to do this role, and you said they haven't necessarily got the business experience. And I think that you have a people analytics team on its own with quite technical people in it, and they're relying on their HR business partners who maybe don't have, A, the understanding of the business, yep. and certainly not the understanding of analytics. Yep, yep. And I do hear from um, a number of people, analytics um, professionals, this feeling of being a bit stranded yeah. in the organization and a bit lonely and not kind of understanding where they're having the impact. And I think a lot of that is driven by the fact that that, that communication is just not there. Um, so they're, you know, the flow from the, the business decision maker through to the people analytics group and back again is not well designed. Um, and, and I think you know, that's 
a relatively common phenomenon, but the more that people can think about bridging that gap and thinking about bringing translators in, the, the easier they can address that. So I've seen you speak, Keith, at a number of conferences and, and other, other members of your team, actually, and I know you're doing some really interesting work um, at McKinsey. Can you give a, listeners a couple of examples of some of the projects that you've done and the outcomes of that's delivered as well? Yeah. Um, so uh, one thing which we, we've been very, very involved in, you know, one of the things I'll mention is our, our name is called the name of our group is called People Analytics and Measurement for a reason. Yeah, I was going to come um, to that. I'm glad you're going to address that. <laughs> so when I, when I thought about what people analytics is, I realized that you can't do good analysis without good measures. Okay. And one of the big challenges in HR is the measures aren't there. Um, so when we, look at, when we look across our, the work that we do in the business, one of the questions we asked is where do we need to get better measures to better enable our analytics in the future? And there are a few areas where, where, where we're doing some interesting and fairly cutting edge work. So one area is this idea of how do we understand um, people's thought processes? So this is really interesting because McKinsey, you know, has a really strong reputation for how it does its recruiting mm. um, and its interviewing. And one of the reasons why it has that re reputation is because in our interviews, we focus very heavily on understanding how people think about a problem, not whether they get the right answer or not, but how they think about the problem. And one of the challenges we've been dealing with for a number of years is, you know, you can only interview so many people. So how do you open that up? How, are there ways that technology can allow us to you know, understand among a greater number of people how people think and, and, and in order to be able to tell you know, what type of a career would best suit them? You know, would they make a great McKinsey consultant? Would they make a great, great digital designer or data scientist? So um, we've been working on a digitized um, assessment that uh, really involves tasks, not questions. Um, so instead of a traditional test where you'd be asked a question, you had like A, B, C, or D, and you had to pick one of them, uh, in this type of um, uh, assessment, you're actually put in front of the computer screen, and you have to do stuff. And the things you do help us understand how do you go about solving a problem. Yeah. Um, and that helps us get measures, which um, we're hoping in the future will help us to be able to better understand what types of problem solving um, problem solvers people are. Um, and I'm absolutely convinced that we can get much more intelligent at fitting people with careers that best suit them. So a lot of people are unhappy or they perform poorly in their careers because they've just been poorly matched with what they do, what, what their skills are. Um, so getting a better understanding of people's skills will help us better match. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, are, you solve problems like this, so therefore you would be best fitted in an environment that does this type of work. Um, so right now we're really focused on problem solving for that, and you know we've we've already started implementing this assessment in many in, in a number of um, scenarios. We've got incredibly great um, reaction from the actual candidates themselves, who you know think it's much more interesting than doing a paper and pencil test, um, uh, probably unsurprisingly, but but certainly a excellent response from the candidates. And we're now starting to you know think about how we expand it and how we you know open it up to more people. Um, and uh, hopefully in the future we'll be able to move outside the problem-solving realm and start to think about is this a way that we can understand you know, what people, how people behave and what types of job would suit their personality traits and those sorts of things. The whole personality space is much more difficult to measure and much more challenging cool. psychometrically, so that'll be a little bit further down the line, I think. But certainly, you know, what we're developing here is probably you know, the most cutting-edge psychometric tool that's out there at the moment and something I'm very proud to be working on, but I think, you know, it, it, I also feel very fortunate to work for an organization that allows me to work in something so um, so amazing. Um, 
So that's one of the things. I think another area where we're trying to understand better measurement is this concept of connection and interaction. So um, there's a very good um, expert on organizational design called Naomi Stanford, and I watched her speak at a conference I was at um, last year. And one of the things she said which really fascinated me was, uh, what she had, what is organizational design, she asked. And I think a lot of us understand organiza organizational design to mean like tree diagrams and yeah. who's who's boss and, yeah. and, and those sorts of things. But what she said is organizational design is the study of how work flows through organizations. And that made me realize that to understand uh, how people interact is going to be a critical element of people analytics. It's, it's one of those things where we can really raise the discipline above what we've studied in the past and bring it to a whole new level um, of understanding. So we've been doing a lot of work around networks. We've been um, uh, you know, uh, moving our data into graph formats so we can understand interactions and links between individuals and, and, and uh, what do they know, who do they know, what have they done, when have they done it, um, and, and allowing um, us to analyze through connections rather than the standard way of looking at data, which is in tables. Uh, so we've been doing a lot of work around that, and, and that is starting to feed into a lot of the general data science that we do. So when people ask us to do modeling and things, we can start to bring in measures of connection and things like that into the models, which we weren't able to do before. I think the other area, uh, which I mentioned, which we're doing a lot of work in, is text and language. Um, so, so much of what comes in through any talent process is text and language. Um, when you evaluate people, often you're evaluating them on the basis of comments that people have made about them, those sorts of things. Um, when you survey people, get their, get their opinions on things, it's often in the form of text. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a big challenge for organizations in the past, especially if they're large organizations, has been wading through all of that. You, you know, a human being can only take in so much. They can only understand and process so much. So if you're an organization, you've got like 10,000 comments from, from an annual survey, how is a human being supposed to group that into a set of topics? That's very, very challenging. Mm. Um, but within the natural language processing field, we have algorithms that can do that. So we've been working a lot on being able to automate the process of breaking up large amounts of text into distinct topics and being able to say, you know, on average, when our people are answering a question like this, these are the three or four topics that they tend to focus on. And that's fantastic for our um, leadership to be able to have that level of synthesis. So those are some of the things that we've been you know, really pushing the boat on out on recently. All fascinating areas. And I think that the, I think we're only at the early stage of both the analysis we can do on text as it relates to people within an organization and then networks as well. Yeah. I'm seeing some really interesting projects going on around the world around understanding networks, understanding the importance in sales performance, customer loyalty, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and as you said, how the work flows through the organization as well, rather than just looking at the org chart, which is how we've yeah. traditionally done it. So yeah. I suspect the, that you'll be doing more of the same for the next question. But you know, what, what's next? You know, what are you going to be? What are, what's on the horizon for the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, so I think um, all of those are still, as you say, in, in relatively early stages. We've seen some interesting conclusions from some of our work. Um, for example, on the network stuff, we, we've done some analysis around what does it mean to be connected in an organization? You know, is there a certain minimum level of people you should know? Mm. Um, and we have started to learn that there are lines where you can say if, if people are below that level of connection, there's a much greater likelihood that, the, that, you might, that they might leave the organization um, in the future, that, 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 that sort of analysis. So we're starting to see interesting results that are coming out 
from the early stages of the world, but there's a long way to go in terms of enabling your data model to be able to do the most advanced um, analytics in this space. So a lot of our focus will be just on pushing uh, those areas I already spoke about. I would say in addition to what I've said, there's two areas that we will continue to push on. One is continuing to develop this self-service model. So we, we've, cut, we've come up with some pretty good frameworks where we think about how do people access data in an organization? At what levels do different people need data? Um, and what journeys do they go on when they look for data? Um, so I think that's one thing that uh, we will continue to develop our self-service model against that framework so that not only are we providing data, but we're providing the right data to the right people at the right time. Um, so pushing that further um, is very important. Um, another area is uh, cloud computing or distributed computing. So. Um, a lot of, especially in large organizations, a lot of the people analytics topics can get into the realm of huge amounts of data, particularly if you're dealing with text data. Um, and you can be very limited with what you can do unless you can have access to some sort of distributed or cloud computing resource. So we're starting to move towards doing more of our analysis in, you know, in, in large kind of computational arenas. So that's a kind of technical area uh, that we're pushing on. The last thing, which you kind of gives us a creative edge to what we do, which I think is really, really important, is we're experimenting with data art. So it's this idea of how do you get people to engage with data in your yeah. organization? And one of the things that I thought is, you know, we've been thinking a lot about making data relevant and making data um, accessible, but how do you build an emotional connection with data? How do you make people go, wow, I really want to see that. I really want to look at it. Um, so we've been experimenting a lot uh, lately with creating art that tells the story of our firm, which is really interesting. Um, I'm cautious about the term storytelling in our field, yeah. but where it does work very well is historical um, data, because there is a story to be told. Um, so we've been working with a few of our locations um, to kind of use data to tell the story of their history, and that's been really amazing work. And some of our you know, um, uh, graphic design um, experts have been really involved in that. Um, and it's really just a passion project for us, but it's really developing into something that I think will uh, have a bigger application, which is this idea of how do you build that emotional connection with data and get people to love data more in, you, in your organization. So that's something we'll, be, we'll do more of, I expect. So well, I've, I've read the, the, the article you wrote about storytelling, so I, I've got the, the context to it as well. But just for the listeners that haven't read that article yet, why the concern about storytelling? Because yeah, you're right, absolutely. a lot of people talk about it. Absolutely. Um, so one of the problems when you don't have a data literate or research literate organization is that people can very quickly jump to conclusions. Um, and I think one of the problems in most enterprises is that um, people say, I'm going to do an analytics project now, and I'm going to do it so that I can prove something. Yeah. And that is the wrong approach because that puts you under pressure to prove it. Mm. Um, what you need to be saying is, I'm going to do an analytics project to get the answer to this specific question. And the answer might be, you were wrong. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's really important, I think, to, um, to not be taken in by that type of desire for storytelling. And that is a big pressure for, in most organizations to say, I have an objective here and I want a story to come out that looks like this. But from an analytics point of view, you have to go from the other direction, which is to say, you know, I'm going to analyze this and see what it tells me. And then when I know what it tells me, I'll then think about how to present that back. Yeah. But it might tell you nothing. So you shouldn't be under pressure to kind of tell stories yeah. in that way through your data. But of course, as I said, if you're talking about historic data, then that's a story that's already happened. So there's of a course. lot of potential for, for And you can make that there. story more captivating by using data and art, as you, as you said. Absolutely. To do that. Yeah. Okay. 
we could probably talk all day, but we better we better move on. Um, what excites you most about people analytics and where it could develop? And then the flip side to that, what's your biggest concern currently about the space? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so if we go back sort of four or five years when people analytics really burst into its boom um, time, um, it did that on the basis of something which I believe never really materialized, which is this idea of highly advanced prescriptive algorithmic modeling uh, and predictive modeling. And this idea that you could predict when someone was going to leave your organization or those sorts of things. And it doesn't surprise me that that hasn't panned out because there's many reasons why it's very difficult in a talent context to be able to do that type of work. I mean, if you want to know what not, what Netflix movie to watch, that's easy because there's billions of data points and they've, they can analyze it all and they can recommend to you what movie to watch. But in a people context, we don't have that level of data. We don't have the types of algorithms that can really accurately pinpoint those sorts of things. But it was that that kind of I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I think it was that that really was the forcing device to push people analytics, this idea that people thought you could do this. So it's amazing. I thought in many ways, people analytics came on the scene out of something that never really materialized. But it was a good thing that it came on the scene because what excites me about people analytics is the fact that we're now opening up this discipline to bring in expertise that organizations never had before. Yeah. So psychometrics, you know, network analysis, natural language processing, all those things I've mentioned, are things that are now being allowed to move into this space because it's opened up and because people are realizing there's something we need to do here. So even though you know the initial foundations may not have been solid and may not have been the thing that really brought it into its own, it has created an environment that's allowed it to develop in a way um, that has brought a lot of really specific expertise into it. So what I personally excites me about working in this field is the sheer amount of different types of models and methodologies that I'm using the different types of um, expertise that I'm bringing into these problems. It's so varied and it's so cross-disciplinary. Um, that's really what, what, what excites me about it. Um, in terms of your second question, which is what, what worries um, me the most in, in people analytics, I think two things. One is, um, I think there's a lot of people who say they're practicing people analytics, but they're not really practicing people analytics. And uh, the danger is that if you get a lot of like poor quality examples of what's happening in this space, it can make decision makers say, well, there's not really a lot there. Yeah. And maybe I shouldn't be investing in this after all. So I think it is very important that when we communicate work to the broader people analytics community, that we're careful about the quality of that work and that it is genuine insight. And we're not just talking around the topic a lot. Um, I think that's one thing. And then I, I think the second thing is that I'm, you know, I've not seen the kind of pace that I, of, of development that I would have ideally liked. So I think the person report showed that, um, you know, that there's that, that a lot of organizations still feel they're fairly basic yeah. um, in their people analytics operations. Um, so I think we need to get to the bottom of what's what's why we're not moving rapidly on that. Well, what is this? What, you know, what's slowing us down? Um, because I would like to keep up the pace of excitement and the pace of development that's been going on, going on over the last few years. Um, and I worry that it's, it'll eventually peter out if we don't keep that, that pace up. So. Any concerns on the sort of ethics side of things and what that could do to the, the, the field? I mean, um, I think GDPR has been a great development um, for we the are, field. We agree with that. For ethics. <laughs> um, because it's forced us to address the question. Uh, there was no forcing device there before. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, some organizations naturally have strong ethics. Um, and therefore, you know, when they look at GDPR, they're probably looking and saying, well, it's not telling us anything new. We were doing that already. But there's probably some organizations out there that are thinking, whoa, okay, you know, there's some things we have to do differently now. 
Um, so that, that, that's been great as a forcing device. And what I really like about GDPR is the forcing device orients around fairness. How do we make sure with all this technology that we are actually being fair to employees? Because it's very easy using algorithms to start to drive probabilistic judgments mm. on things that can result in a decision about someone's future career based on a probability. And sometimes that probability is not even very high. Um, and it's important that we don't go down that route. It's important that our decisions are always made fairly with all of the employee skills in mind, which is why, by the way, there'll always be a big role for people in the HR space because people need to make that judgment. Machines won't be doing that anytime soon. Um, so, so ethics is a very important part of the business, but I think we're much further along because of GDPR. Yeah. And, um, and I think you know, that that's, that's great. And if there's you know, HR professionals that don't yet understand GDPR, I would encourage them to get out there and, and understand it because it's a very good basis to kind of operate your business around. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think GDPR is actually is a good thing. And it's easy for me to say because I don't have to implement it within an organization. But I think in long term, it really forces companies to actually, as you said, really think about the employee um, and actually think, you know, if we can't really communicate the, what the benefits of this are to employees, then maybe we shouldn't do it. I think that's a good thing. And ho hopefully it helps protect Absolutely. the field. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about, obviously, the, the wider context, a bit about what you're doing in, in McKinsey and, and the people analytics and measurement role. Somehow you managed to be a prolific writer as well. And obviously a series of different articles there, some, some talking about the work that you're doing, others talking about some of the wider context. What motivates you to do that, to, mm -hmm. to, to keep going? And, and, and what, have you, what new experiences have you had from doing it as well? Yeah, I think... Um, Part of it is selfish. Um, I, I realized that in a chaotic space like this, where there's a huge amount going on and it doesn't really have a great deal of organization to it, mm. um, uh, it's important to get clarity in your mind about what's important and what's not important. And writing is an incredible way of doing that. Um, so the actual process of sitting down and creating a linear narrative around something is an amazing way of clarifying something in your own mind. So a lot of the very clear thoughts and opinions I have on things has come out of my, the process of writing. So in many ways, I do it for myself. Um, but of course, there are a lot of people out there in the HR community that are really trying to grapple with stuff at the moment. They're seeing all this stuff come their way, and they don't know what they should be focusing on, what's important, what's not important. So in many ways, by my own process of clarifying that in my mind and writing about it, you can share those perspectives with others, and hopefully that will help them navigate their way um, through this. So that's been a, a you know a big kind of motivation um, for for me to do that. Um, and I think both of those reasons are important. If any one of them weren't there, I probably wouldn't be writing as much as I do. Um, but but the writing aspect is very important. I think one other reason I would say is because I have two I do two types of writing. Some of my writing is more general about the future of HR and, yeah. and those sorts of things but I do quite a bit of technical writing. Um, and the reason I do technical writing is because I, I would ideally like to model to the HR community um, a journey that I've taken, which is that if you talked to me three or four years ago, I didn't know how to code. I would have had no idea how to do this stuff. But I put that effort in and I learned because I realized that to work effectively in the world of the future mm. and to be credible in the analytics space, you have to really know that stuff. So I actually took that journey and I want to help and encourage other people to do that because I think that's very important. You can't just sit there and talk about people analytics. You just have to you have to go and do stuff to make yeah. yourself better at it. Um, and so a lot of my writing um, both encourages that, but also gives people tips and shows them you know ways of doing things, shares code with them. And you know I hope more and more people will do that because 
in the end, we're moving towards an environment where a lot of our development is in open source, so people can, can collaborate a lot more um, on topics. And innate, you can enable a faster movement towards that by sharing your own experiences and your own expertise. Well, please keep it up, because I, I know lots of people enjoy it, I enjoy it, and I think it's good when people are actually doing the work like you, like Dawn Klinghoffer, Patrick Hood, and actually share you know, some of their experiences. I think it's inspirational for, for those of us out there that are trying to learn. So uh, keep, keep that going. So that leads us on to the final question. This is a question we ask everyone mm -hmm. who comes, uh, kindly comes as a guest on the show. Where, where do you see the future of HR going? So if we look to 2025, 20, and please feel free to go, to go beyond that time span if you'd like to. Yeah, and I think I'd have to go beyond it because 2025 is not very far away. No. And one of the things we mentioned <laughs> earlier is that I, I don't see us moving at pace yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my honest answer is hopefully there will be a few more organizations that have like, you know, are starting to touch on HR 3.0. There's, there's a few that are, that are in that space now handful i would say mm. hopefully a little bit more than a handful by 2025 but i don't anticipate rapid progress just on the you know the pace of of what i'm seeing and economic conditions will affect that as well okay so you know so um things go up and down with the economy and we can't really predict um you know to what extent it will no. continue to be um, a, a, an area of growth um for companies um so uh 2025 seems a bit too short for me um as i look out past that um, I would hope that a few things start to happen. I would, I would hope that um, we start to see a reshaping of what HR is um, within the education and training sector um, so that um, professional organizations and um, universities and other training institutions start to re reshape and rethink what is the role of an individual coming out of a qualification and moving into an, an HR function. Mm -hmm. And what types of roles could they possibly play and move it beyond the kind of, you know, service line idea that, that, that we've been operating around for some time. So I hope that that um, starts to develop. And then relating to what I said earlier, I hope that we start to see um, some greater productivity from HR professionals themselves to skill themselves up, particularly around um, analytics, but also around agile and what it means to operate agile um, within organizations. Um, and also a little bit of... Um, positive movement from from leaders like CHROs uh, in terms of pushing these disciplines more within their functions um, so that we, you know, we, we gradually move away from that, uh, somewhat away from that uh, swim lane idea and have much more generalist yep. um, capabilities and competencies within the HR function. Um, but as I said earlier in, in, in the interview, I think it, it is really in the short term reliant on the professionals and the leaders to push that. Um, and if they do that, I think we'll start to see the educational institutions and the professional organizations follow suit and move that, that ball along more. And in terms of automation, uh, autom automation even, if I can get the word right, of the HR function, you know, how, where do you see that sort of progressing over the next sort of five to 10 years? So I think there is considerable opportunity for automation to play a role um, in HR. It really depends on scale. So we, one of the things is when we, when we have these discussions, we talk about the HR function, right? Mm. But in some organizations, the HR function is like 10 people. Yeah. And in some organizations, the HR, people is thousands, the HR function is thousands of people, right? So scale is a big factor in automation. Um, and in order to effectively automate a process, you can do that in small and large scale businesses if the process is easily predictable. So you might be, you might be seeing, for example, that, that as we move towards the future, Simple interactions with employees, which we already see in some organizations, like can I can I see my payslip or 
when I find out more about my benefits or those sorts of things uh, become more automated. But anything beyond that where you're asking for a recommendation to be made or an action to be taken and for the machine to make that decision and recommend that, I don't see that happening in the near future simply because no organizations are really operating at a true scale yeah. that would allow that to develop, you know, to create accurate recommendations on anything more than basic and decision making. So I think where automation has a role to play is in delivering more rapid, you know, general processes in the organization. Both and and it's often about employees or or um, or uh, uh, professionals in the organization being able to access stuff for themselves. And that's where we've gone down with our analytics route, right? Which is moving more towards a self-serve type of analytics model where people can get all the key metrics for themselves in the organization. Great. Well, Keith, thank you very much for being on the show. Um, it's been great to have you. Um, how can people stay in touch with you via social media and, and access um, the stuff that you're publishing? Yeah, I mean, um, the two most common sources that I use, um, LinkedIn. Um, so I do a lot of writing on LinkedIn, uh, mainly around more general um, HR and um, people topics. Uh, some articles around psychometrics there as well. Um, and then for more technical writing, so if you're kind of more of a data science type and you want to get into the nitty-gritty of stuff, um, I do some writing on Medium, um, and that's more, you know, examples of how you can approach a particular problem or, you know, ways that you can code things. Um, and so those are kind of the two, um, the two major sources of, um, of uh, information that I'd recommend to people if they want to follow some of my writing. Perfect. Well, Keith, as I said, it's been a pleasure to, to have you on the Digital HR Leaders Show. I'll see you soon. Great. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on iTunes and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make this podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest news and learning on the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too. That's all for this week, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Lena Nair, Chief HR Officer of Unilever. Not only is Lena pioneering next generation HR at Unilever, but she is an extremely passionate and knowledgeable speaker. So you really don't want to miss that one. See you next time.